Father, we thank you for the love of Christ that is shed abroad into our hearts by your Holy Spirit as your Holy Spirit shows us Jesus and shows us the monument of your great love at the cross. Father, I pray that in a work that only you could do, one that I can't do, I, I am not able to do it, Father. Would you open our eyes to your great love for us in Jesus? Let us see him love him and be loved by him today with joy and thanksgiving. Prepare our hearts to celebrate our great Lord, the lover of our soul, as we gather around the Lord's table to close our service in just a few moments. Lord, be among us. And Father, I pray not only for us, but for those partners in this community, our brothers and sisters who are the church of Jesus Christ. Specifically, I pray for Pastor Matt Simpson and Harbor City Baptist Church in Melbourne, Lord, that you'd fill them with your spirit and knowledge of your word. And may they rejoice and be glad today in Jesus and go out on mission to make Jesus known. And God, thank you. Thank you for letting us be a part of that great mission to make Jesus known, not only in this community, but around the world. God, thank you for that team of people we were able to send to Cambodia this last week. Father, would you fill them with your spirit? Give them such great joy to see you, to have a front row seat to the work of Christ among the nations. Be glorified among your people today. Teach us your word. Lord, let us see Jesus today. It's in Christ's name we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark chapter 12 this morning. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study of the life of Jesus Christ according to the gospel of Mark. And if you've been tracking along with us, you know that we are in a section of Mark that really is leading into the final days of Jesus Christ. This is the final week of his earth ministry. It's probably Tuesday. Some scholars say Wednesday. I think it's probably Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' ministry on the earth. By Friday, he's going to be crucified by the religious leaders under the authority of the Roman government. So we're in these final hours of the life of Christ on earth. And in chapter 12, where we've been for about a month or so, Uh, Chapter 12 of Mark records this escalating conflict that's taking place between Jesus and the religious leaders, particularly a group known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was basically the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel, made up of a bunch of different groups of religious leaders like Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and chief priests and elders. They all came together to form the Sanhedrin, the great council of the nation of Israel. And what we know as we've studied Mark is that those leaders had already made up their mind to destroy Jesus. But they couldn't just come right out and destroy him because there were enormous crowds of people who had a very favorable opinion of Jesus. And so they didn't want to turn the crowds against them. And they had to find a way to try and turn the crowds against Jesus. And so they employ this strategy here in Mark chapter 12 to try and ask Jesus a series of trick questions 
that they think will make him look foolish in front of the crowds. And so each group from the Sanhedrin comes to Jesus and tries to trick him and trip him up in his words by asking him trick questions. And what we have seen as we've been studying those questions is that not only were these three stooges of religious leaders unable to make Jesus look foolish, but he turned the tables on them literally and figuratively in a way that they finally decided not to ask him any more questions because it only backfired every time they did. Jesus so masterfully answered all their questions that they just stopped asking questions altogether. Well, here we are at the very end of that exchange in Mark chapter 12, and they're not asking Jesus any more questions, but that doesn't mean that the Q&A session with Jesus is over. Not at all. Because Jesus actually has a question. He wants to ask them something. And it's a question that's not only for them. It's a question for us in turn. And I want you to know this, friend. It's the most important question that you will ever be asked. The most important question you will ever answer. And essentially the question comes down to this. Who is Jesus? All of us are faced with that question this morning. And no matter what else is going on in your life and no matter what else is part of your story, you need to hear this as clearly as I am able to say it. And I pray the Holy Spirit presses in on your heart right now that there is nothing more important in your life today. And there will never be anything more important for your life forever than the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? And before we read the way Jesus forms that question in Mark, I really actually want to begin by reading a quick verse from Matthew's account of this exchange, because Matthew includes a question and an exchange that Jesus has with the religious leaders that really becomes the turning point into where Mark picks up on the conversation. Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, once all of the religious leaders are done asking their questions of Jesus, Jesus says this, verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They, those religious leaders said to him, the son of David. Okay, let's track along here. Jesus asked these religious leaders, what do you think about the Christ? Hey, what are your thoughts about the Christ? And we know Jesus is the Christ. But the word Christ isn't Jesus' last name. And I don't say that to be funny. I say that because a lot of us don't really know what the term Christ means. But we know it's associated with the name of Jesus. Well, the word Christ is actually a title that means the anointed one. You see, the Jews referred to this anointed one as the Messiah and Christ It's just the Greek version of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And in case you're not familiar with the Bible's teaching about the anointed one or the Messiah or the Christ, I want to give you a very, I mean, super quick overview. From the very beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis 3.15, after mankind had rebelled against God and a curse had fallen on this whole planet and the universe was altered forever because of the rebellion of mankind. God came to people in Genesis 3 
And he promised that one day he would send a rescuer, a deliverer, a savior who would rescue his people in every way that they needed to be rescued. He would defeat all of our enemies, even though he himself would be crushed in the process. And for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament, from the very beginning in Genesis 3, God progressively revealed more and more and more detail about the anointed one. He went on to tell his people that this anointed one, this Messiah or Christ, would be a great king who would usher in an eternal kingdom that would be marked by peace and joy and righteousness and justice and satisfaction on every level. That is who the Christ was known to be. And Jesus asked these religious experts who'd spent their whole life studying the Old Testament, what do you think about Messiah? Who's, whose son is he? What a great Question. Keep that in mind because the Pharisees answer by saying that the Christ is going to be the son of David or the descendant. That term son isn't just for the father-son relationship, but it's all of the sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, all of the descendants of the head of a family. And he says he will be a descendant of King David. And you need to know that was the common understanding of the religious scholars of Jesus' day. Those religious scholars were known as the scribes. And that brings us to Mark's account. He picks up after the religious leaders answer that first question that Matthew records. Now let's go to our text, Matthew ch- or Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. It says this, and Jesus taught in the temple. And he said, And it's almost like he's turning from the religious leaders to the rest of the crowds. And he asked this, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your, put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? And the great throng heard him Gladly. Okay, stop right there. After the religious leaders say that the Christ will be the descendant of King David, there in Matthew 22, that first verse we read, Jesus turns and he asks a follow-up question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? And if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, uh, that question might seem a bit confusing to you because when you study the Old Testament, what you find is that it clearly indicates that the Christ is actually going to be a descendant. Of David. That's actually why Matthew chapter 1 starts by saying that Jesus is the son of David and then gives a genealogy that traces Christ's earthly heritage all the way back to David and even further back to Abraham. Because in this way, the religious leaders are correct. The Messiah would be a descendant of King David. And Jesus isn't contradicting that, he's not pressing in on that. That's not what Jesus is clarifying. His point is clarified in verse 36. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, so that verse right there is a quote. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was a psalm that was written 
by the great King David, the same David and Goliath David, who went on to be the greatest king of the golden age of the nation of Israel. And I just want you to notice, and I can't spend much time on this, but it's a really good side note. Notice that Jesus affirms that the Old Testament scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do you guys see that there? He's saying that David may have been the human author of this psalm, but David was only writing as he was moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus treated the Old Testament as divinely inspired scriptures. It's a great apologetic for the authority of the Old Testament as seen by Jesus Christ himself. Moving on though, what was it that the Holy Spirit inspired David to say about Messiah or Christ? The Lord said to my Lord. What's the significance of that? Well, without going into too much detail, this psalm is a really important messianic psalm. It's actually the passage from the Old Testament that is most often quoted in the New Testament. 33 times, Psalm 110 is either quoted or alluded to in the New Testament because it's filled with messianic significance. It refers to the Messiah in multiple ways. And in this passage, when you go back to the original uh, Psalm 110 in the Hebrew, you find that that word Lord is actually two different words in verse one. The, The first word for Lord, where it says, the Lord said, is the name of God. It's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And as you're reading the Old Testament, just as a side note, if you went back to Psalm 110, you would see that that word Lord is in all capital letters. And the translators of our English Bible do that because they want you to know every time the word Lord is in all capital letters, it's translating the covenant name of God or the word Yahweh. It's letting you know without mistake, there's only one person this could be, and that is almighty God himself. The second word though, the Lord said to my Lord, that word Lord, the second one is the word Adonai. It means the one who has absolute sovereignty. He is the sovereign Lord over something. And in most cases of the Old Testament, you need to know that that term Adonai is the supreme title to refer to God. So Yahweh is his name. Most often Adonai is his title. That's why sometimes as you go through the Old Testament, you will find those terms, Lord, Lord, back to back. Like in Psalm 8, we read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That text literally reads, O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Adonai, or O Yahweh, our sovereign one. How excellent is your name? Now, all of that put together, go back to what Jesus is saying. As he quotes from Psalm 110, he's pointing out that Yahweh, Almighty God, the Father, is speaking to the Messiah, who is Adonai, the sovereign ruler. And David says that the sovereign ruler is his, David's Lord, his sovereign ruler. And that's the point that David or Jesus is making. He's saying the Messiah is not just the son, earthly descendant 
of David. He's the Lord, the sovereign ruler of David. The greatest, most revered king in the history of Israel acknowledges that Messiah is his sovereign ruler, not just his son. And in Jewish culture, the father was never, ever subordinate to his son or his grandsons or any of his descendants. It was always the other way around. You honored the one from whence you came. They didn't honor you. It was an honor culture. The descendants honored their fathers as greater than themselves, not their sons as greater than themselves. And so how is it that Messiah can be both the son of David and the ruler of David? That's what Jesus is asking here. How could Jesus fulfill both of those descriptions? And you want to know the answer? If you're still with me, you do. (laughs) The answer is this. Jesus is in a category all by himself. There's no one like Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't just the son of man, even though he is the son of man. Jesus is the son of God. He wasn't just descended from David as his son. Jesus was the creator of David as his God. And the religious leaders had no category for that. It didn't fit into their little, nice, neat, religious Sunday, or in their case, Saturday morning worship box. They never imagined that Messiah would somehow be able to be God in human flesh. And it is in the category of theological thought of things that will make your head explode if you try to think on it too long. I can't explain how almighty God could be fully God and fully a man. I don't need to explain it. Because Jesus has already done it. He is fully God, fully man. He is the ruler and king of King David before David was even born. And he is the descendant of King David a thousand years after King David died. Jesus Christ is one of one, y'all. He is the glorious God man. And here he stands And these religious leaders totally miss it. The Son of God is standing right there in front of them. And they missed it. And guys, if you've been studying along with us in Mark chapter 12, don't let it be lost on you that that's actually what we're seeing through this whole section of the book of Mark. When Jesus comes into the temple and he turns over the money changers' tables and he throws the chairs, cleansing the wickedness of that scene, those religious leaders asked, what authority do you have to do this kind of thing? And you know what they missed? They missed the fact that Jesus had that authority because Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one for whom the temple was made as a place of worship. He's the glory of God who existed in the holy of holies as the glory of God made visible on this earth. He had the authority of the temple because the temple was built for his glory 
And when they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar, and he holds out a coin and he says, whose image is this? They totally missed the fact that he is the image of the invisible God standing right there in front of them. When they asked him about the resurrection and he said, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. They missed the fact that standing right there is the word of God made flesh and the resurrection power of God in the flesh. Jesus is the Christ. He's God in the flesh. He is David's Lord. He's the religious leader's Lord. He's my Lord and friend. He's your Lord too. And, And listen, rather than honor Jesus as Lord, what are they doing? They're arguing with him. And they're opposing him. And they're trying to manipulate him. And ultimately, they would reject him and crucify him. And the question as I was studying this week became, what, what would be going on in their hearts that would blind them to the Messiah that they claimed so desperately to want to follow? You see, these were men who knew the Bible backward and forward. These people would have been able to quote Psalm 110 and countless passages just like it about the Messiah. When Jesus references it, they don't just know the verse he's referencing. They know the whole Psalm. And how could these people reject the Messiah that they claim to spend their whole lives seeking to find and honor rather than bowing before him as their Lord. How could they do it? What would go on in their hearts? Well, I believe Jesus gives us insight into what's going on in their heart that blinds them from the reality of who Christ is. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 38. He continues on and says, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay, so as you read those verses, let me just ask You're seeing Jesus peel back the curtain on the heart of those religious leaders who don't recognize who Jesus is. And as he peels back their hearts, let me ask you this. Who does he reveal that they wanted to honor? Themselves. They didn't honor Jesus. You know why? Because they were too preoccupied with honoring themselves. And what does Jesus say will happen to them in the end? Condemnation. He says, when all is said and done, these people who refuse to honor Jesus as their Lord because they want to honor themselves in front of everybody else, they want a life that shows how great they are, not a heart that bows before how great Jesus is, those people, he says, will miss out on every blessing that is to be received through Jesus as our Christ and Lord and Savior. He says they're going to miss out on forgiveness of sin, and they're going to miss out on restoration to God as their Father. They're going to miss out on eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. They're going to miss out on the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore at God's right hand. They're going to miss out on resurrection power. They are going to receive not blessing from Christ, but condemnation for all eternity. And that's the point of this final 
final exchange, this crescendo of warning from Jesus to the religious leaders and to us in turn. And it gives us our big idea for today. Here's our big idea for this day. The blessings of Christ come to those who honor Jesus as Lord. I know that's something most of us have heard before. Most of us have grown up being religious. Most of us can quote portions, some of us large portions of the Bible. Most of us know how to make prayers in public. Most of us know how to attend religious feasts called potluck dinners. That's not the same as honoring Jesus as your Lord. And this is a sobering and important word for us. And we should do well to learn the lesson from the religious leaders. Because Jesus says, beware. And did you notice? I tried to put it in there for you. He's talking to the crowds now, not the religious leaders. He's talking to people like us who may not be scribes. He's saying, beware, there is condemnation, not blessing for those who refuse to honor me as Lord. And so the most important question that all of us in this place are being pressed within the Holy Spirit by the word of God to answer is this, who is Jesus Who is Jesus? Not a storybook figure or a flannel graph image from our childhood. Who is the real and living Jesus? In your heart, in your life, who is Jesus? Not just who is Jesus to you, as though there are a thousand different answers to that question. Who is Jesus? Friend, he isn't just a great teacher. He isn't just a powerful leader. He isn't just a perfect example. He is more than a prophet. He is more than the greatest person to ever live. He is more than Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or any other religious leader. Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is our only hope and our only source of eternal life. Jesus is the one who came to live the life we could not live, a perfect, obedient life to God the Father. He's the one who died the sacrificial death we deserve to die as a sacrifice for sin at the cross. He's the one who defeated death, sin, hell, and the grave by rising again victoriously three days later. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. That's who Jesus is. But we will not receive and enjoy the blessings of Jesus if we do not bow in honor to Jesus as Lord. 
And so as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, here's what I want us to do very quickly. I want to show you three things we learn from our text that teach us a little bit of insight on what it looks like to actually honor Jesus as Lord, not with our lips, but with our lives. Number one, honoring Jesus as Lord means bowing before his authority. Notice again, Mark chapter 12, verse 36, David himself, who's David? He's the guy who killed Goliath, who went down in the lore of history as the greatest king of the golden age of Israel. No one was revered more highly in a sense than King David. And David himself, Jesus says, in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord. Guys, King David bowed before a greater king. In humility, he recognized that someone else had authority over him and his life, even though he was the king. He wasn't the king of his own life. And that person who is king over King David is Jesus Christ, his Lord. We talked about this a lot in our study of the book of Mark. So this isn't a new idea to most of us, but it's really central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So it's worth repeating. And the question is this, who's in control of your life? You or Jesus? Now, don't just answer that without serious consideration. I would encourage you to take an honest inventory and ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see and ears to hear what he would say to you. Do you actually live like you believe Jesus has the right to tell you how to live? Think about your life. Do you spend time like you're desiring to honor Jesus as your Lord with your time? Do you spend money like you're desiring to honor Jesus as your Lord with your money? Do you live toward your spouse today the way Jesus calls you to live toward your spouse? Do you think your kids belong to Jesus or belong to you? What would it look like this morning if you bowed before Jesus as your Lord and you laid everything down in your life before Jesus and said, Jesus, have your way in me What thing in your life are you most struggling to lay down before Jesus? And many of us feel this sensation in our hearts when we talk about submitting and yielding to Jesus. Immediately there's something that comes to our mind that we want to say, Jesus, you can have it all. But this, don't don't do whatever you want to do with this. Some of us know the fear of having a child That Christ is calling us to lay in their prodigal, wayward state before Jesus and say, Jesus, have your way. Some of us know the pain and uncertainty we feel when we have a spouse who's struggling with a disease that Jesus is calling us to lay down and say, Jesus, have your way. What does it look like for us to bow before Jesus and say, Christ, you are my Lord, I and everything I have belongs to you. Jesus, have your way. Honoring Jesus means bowing before his authority. Number two, honoring Jesus means standing in his victory. 
This is a huge part of honoring Jesus as Lord. Look at verse 36. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's a reference to the ultimate victory that Jesus is going to bring to his kingdom people once everything is said and done. But listen, the decisive blow has already been delivered. At his cross and in his empty tomb, Jesus secured our victory and his and his to us through his work at the cross and in the empty grave. He has already secured victory over our greatest foes, sin, death, Satan, hell, and the grave. You know what that means? It means that Jesus is victorious over anything and everything that threatens to steal your joy, to rob you of peace, and to take away your hope. And is anyone in this room tempted to have your joy stolen, your peace robbed, and your hope taken away? You ever feel that? Well, think about those things and listen to this. Jesus is already victorious over those things. And one of the ways we honor his lordship is by standing in faith in his victory, by living like Jesus has already won the battle. Just think about the things in this world that threaten to rob you of joy and peace and hope. And know Jesus is not only stronger than those things, he has already defeated those things and made them his servants that they can only do one thing, and that's accomplish his good plan and purpose for your life. How would you live today if you truly believed Jesus is victorious over cancer and dementia and corrupt governments and national disasters and global conflict and the sins that plague your life and the spiritual forces of darkness that are attacking you each and every day? And the only thing those things have the power to do is to be part of accomplishing Christ's good plan for your life. How would you live if you actually believed that? Well, believe it, because it's true. A couple years ago, the, uh, the Cleveland Browns made it to the playoffs for the first time in a very, very long time. And as fate would have it, we had to go to the evil Pittsburgh Steelers for our first playoff game. And for those of you that don't know, the evil Pittsburgh Steelers had beaten the Browns in Pittsburgh pretty much every time for about a hundred years or so. I don't know the full history, but it's something like that. No one expected us to win. So like we as a family do for every Browns game, my family gathered in our living room to watch that game. And I got to be honest, man, I was a nervous wreck. I'm not superstitious. I just live like I am, thinking that everything that I do has an impact on this game. So I'm pacing the floor, wringing my hands, contemplating the theology of whether or not I should pray for my football team and saying, God, show me grace. I'm praying. I couldn't eat. I could hardly talk. I didn't want any craziness going on in commotion. In some ways, I actually even, and I'll confess this, I almost dreaded the game because as a lifelong Browns fan, I have been conditioned to expect to lose. (laughs) But on the first play of the game, the wicked Steelers lost the ball and a triumphant Cleveland defender picked it up and scored a touchdown and the Green family went bananas. Little did we know, the Browns 
were going to do what the Browns never do. They were going to pull off an all-time beatdown on the dreaded Steelers and their terrible towels. It was a glorious victory. It was a glorious, glorious victory. Now, don't ask me what happened the next game when we played the Chiefs. That's not the point. What's the point? I don't know. Let me look at my notes. Yeah, that's it. The point is that not long after that season finally ended, I saw that game being replayed on television and I watched it again. You know how I watched it? I wasn't anxious at all. I wasn't pacing the floor. I wasn't wringing my hands. I was downright giddy with anticipation. You know why? Because I knew we had already won the game. Victory was already ours. There was literally no way that even the evil Pittsburgh Steelers could win that game. You know why? We'd already won it. You guys know where I'm going with that, right? In an infinitely greater way, do you know that that's how Jesus is able to change your journey through this life? We are watching a game Jesus has already won. He is Lord over all. He has dealt a victorious blow to every one of our enemies. Literally, they cannot win. You know why? Jesus has already won. We're watching victory unfold. There is a cross and an empty grave that prove it's true. So stop watching the news like you're going to wonder how it will all turn out. Rejoice and be glad. Live with anticipation, not dread, even in an election year. That's One way we honor Christ as Lord by standing in his victory. Friend, the situations that are over your head are under his feet. That's what this literally said. Jesus rules the universe with his feet up and his enemies are his footstool. Praise and glory be to Jesus, right? We honor Jesus as Lord By bowing to his authority, by standing in his victory, and then just a couple minutes, this last one, we honor Jesus as Lord. That means we are living on his mission. Read those verses just again, 38 and 39. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Where he talked about this, the religious hypocrites lived on a mission. And the mission was to make themselves look good. The deepest desire of their hearts was that the people around them would honor them. That's easy to see. And it's also easy for us to look down our noses at them like their lives were nothing more than just a hypocritical religious charade because they would gather in big groups and they would sing great songs and they would quote passages of scripture. But then when they walked around their city, the only thing they cared about is that people would honor them. Well, let me ask you this. Who should they have wanted people to honor? Jesus. Why? Why? Because he's Lord. 
So then the question becomes this. Before we condemn the religious hypocrites, would we just think about this for a second? Who do you want the people in your life to honor? Where you live, work, learn, and play, are you living on a mission to let others know the reason that Jesus is worthy of honor? What would it look like if you lived intentionally toward the people in your life looking for the Holy Spirit to open doors for you to tell them about our glorious Lord? Would you just pray today that God would give you an opportunity this week for the light of Christ to shine through you so that they would see your life, his life in you and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a glorious Lord who laid down his life so that we might live forever. He's the Christ. He's the rescuer. God promised to send into this world to save us in every way that we need saved. And that brings us to our Lord's Supper. Go ahead and take out those elements. We're going we're gonna to spend just a few minutes at the close here doing something that's called the Lord's Supper. And I hope that word's not lost on you this morning. We call this the Lord's Supper, right? You know why? Because our Lord has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our Lord has chosen to use his power and authority and glory. You know how? By laying his life down for us. Providing forgiveness of sin and restoration to God the Father. And our Lord is not only willing to give his life for us. He's willing to live his life through us. That's why we take these representations of his body and blood into ourselves as an expression of our faith in the gospel that says Christ, who's represented in this, the Lord will live in us as we trust in him. It's the Lord's Supper, a celebration of the Lord. And for that reason, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, if you would say Jesus isn't my Lord, we would ask you to just refrain from engaging in this because this is an expression, an external display of our faith in Jesus. Parents, we partner with you as you're walking your kids through this, that that would be an appropriate conversation, that this is an expression of our faith and our submission to Jesus as Lord. And so before we take these elements, we want to have a moment of prayer and just ask God to prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus in this act. So would you bow your heads And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, right now, would you call on Jesus as Lord and ask him to save you? Praying a prayer something like this. Jesus, I know I've sinned and my sin has separated me from you. Jesus, I believe that you have come to live a perfect life on my behalf to die a sacrificial death at the cross on my behalf and you rose again to raise me up to a new kind of life. So Jesus, I trust you, save me by your power. I acknowledge you as Lord and I lay my life down before you. Jesus, thank you for saving me. 